Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Rabbi Yoel Berman, the author of the recently published book, Living in the Land, which is a collection of 50 articles by Frum Olim, who describe their experiences of moving and living in the land of Israel. But these are not your typical Olim. When you hear talk of Aliyah, usually you think of modern Orthodox Jews, the keep us through God types. This book is all black hat types. And that's intentional because Rabbi Berman wants to appeal to the black hat world, wants to remind people that moving to Israel is a Jewish value, not a Zionist value. It's a Zionist value too. But just because Zionists, whom you may or may not agree with, embrace this mitzvah does not mean that it's no longer a mitzvah. It is a mitzvah. Or it's at least certainly something that a Jew should desire to do according to the Torah. And so Rabbi Berman collected these 50 essays. Rabbi Berman himself, by the way, is very Haredi. He grew up in the yeshiva community of Los Angeles, California. He's been living in Israel ever since he went to learn in the Mary Yeshiva of Yerushalayim. And he's now very, very active in several organizations, including Kedushat Zion, Avir Eretz Israel, Life in the Land, all dedicated to helping people from a yeshiva background move to Israel, letting them know what resources are out there, why from a Torah point of view perhaps they should move, how they as yeshivish people can navigate the waters of Israel, what communities they would feel comfortable in, what kinds of schools they would feel comfortable sending their kids to, etc., etc. Rabbi Berman, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Did I accurately describe what you're trying to do, that you're focusing on the Torah aspect of moving to Eretz Israel rather than the quote-unquote Zionist aspect of moving to Israel? So I would qualify that a little bit. In the book that I put out, I don't really deal so much with the Torah point of view. And I think in general, a lot in the yeshiva community, that's not what's stopping them. I think it's actually more misconceptions about the reality here on the ground in Israel. I think that's what's preventing a lot of people from thinking about it as a realistic option. And that's the major goal of my book, is to dispel a lot of those misconceptions. Give one or two examples, if you don't mind. One example might be the lack of community infrastructure that they're used to. Like, for example, in Israeli Haredi mentality, a shul is just a place to daven. That's it. It's, there's no community aspect to it. And Americans are much more used to having a shul that gives more of a sense of a community. People are connected to the Rav, connected to the shul. You know, if you think it doesn't exist for you, it's a whole different style of living. You might be scared of that. That's just one example. What would be another one? In the kind of schools that exist here, maybe American yeshivish people would be interested in a more rounded education. They think maybe it doesn't exist over here. On both those fronts, you're arguing that these are misconceptions. That's, that's actually not the reality on the ground? It was the reality, and it's a reality that's been evolving and changing. And I want to bring that to the forefront for people to realize and when do these changes start taking place? 20 years ago? 5 years ago? So, slowly but surely. In other words, it could be 20 years ago, there were already a little bit of change here and there. And then, I think the change has been exponential as time went on. Like in the past few years, there's been a lot of change. And is that because there are more and more American Olim in the land? 
Definitely. The more they come, the more the masses demand the resources and the options. So the more people come, the more demand there is for just regular market forces of supply and demand. There's more of a demand for that kind of education. So somebody is going to come up with it. I'm not sure if this is really a concern or not, but I have read once or twice that holding some people back from coming to Israel among the more moderate yeshiva world is that the yeshiva world in Israel is, is more radical, is more extreme. If you value some sort of secular studies, especially higher level secular studies, either you have to become more extreme or you have to join the Dati Lumi community. But if you grew up in the yeshiva world, you don't really feel comfortable joining the Dati Lumi community. At the same time, you're not really sure if you feel so comfortable going all the way and going on, you know, a war against college and a war against college for girls, let's say, especially. Is that characterization true, that this is a problem? So I would say this goes back to what I said before, that this is definitely something that was true 20 years ago and more true 30 years ago. But again, there was a process happening. And I want to point out two points. Number one, the fact that there are more Americans coming here and they are interested in these options. So somebody's going to cater to that, and it's going to be less fringe. The more people there are, the more mainstream it becomes. That's number one. Number two, this is one point that maybe is lost on a lot of people. There's exponential growth in the Haredi community, in the Israeli Haredi community. Now with that growth also comes a widening of the fringes and of the mainstream. In other words, what wasn't acceptable 20 years ago in a smaller society there will be room for a lot more things in a wider society. And Israeli Haredi society is wider than it was 20 years ago, and even five years ago. Let me ask you about whether it's a mitzvah to move to Israel. It's not a mitzvah. Because clearly, you know, in the modern Orthodox community, there's an encouragement, I think, throughout the entire educational system, that it's a good thing to move to Israel. And many modern Orthodox kids, actually, when they're dating, it's like part of their, you know, resume do you want to move to Israel? Do you not want to move to Israel? It's kind of like central in their mindset. In the Yeshiva world, you know, some people move, some people don't move. It's not at all central. And some people wonder like why that is, because according to many postcom, it is a mitzvah to move to Israel. And even if it's not a mitzvah, I think one of the contributors to your book, uh, more than one contributor to your book, say even if it's not technically a mitzvah, at the very least, it's clear that that's what Hashem ideally wants. And so why is it that in the Moishiva world, people don't even seem to think about very much about moving to Israel, even though clearly if it's not a mitzvah, it's certainly a chumrah, it's certainly a great thing to do. I think it goes back to the perceptions about what was happening here. In other words, the mitzvah aspect that might exist in the minds of the yeshiva community, they're trained to think about things in the context of, of mitzvah, of what's on Hashem, what Hashem wants us to do. But the question is, everything comes with a scale. You have to measure things properly. Like, what's up against what? So if there's a big chance of people going down spiritually, so that would be a reason not to come, especially if it's not an obligatory mitzvah. You know, people want to rely on that. So they'll weigh all these different things, and then they'll make a calculated decision. But I think a lot of this weighing includes misinformation and disinformation. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's almost like a secondary. You're already up to step two. I think step one is, I mean, one of the other people in your book writes that he knew all the Agatas about how wonderful it is to live in Eretz Yisrael. He knew all of that. He said he never, ever connected these d- different statements he learned in Gemara with his own personal life. He never, ever said to himself, one second, if it says X, Y, and Z in the Gemara, 
maybe I should consider moving to Israel. It never once occurred to him. And I think that is true, that some people, they read all these things in the Gemara and the Chumash and a million different svarim, but they never actually seriously consider to themselves, one second, should I consider, seriously consider moving myself to Eretz Yisrael? And that seems to me a little bit of a problem. Okay, so maybe there's a twofold answer to this. One is that a lot of people connect to Eretz Yisrael from the sources in an abstract way. It's not a tangible reality. When they're learning all these agaratas that mention Eretz Yisrael, it's some utopian thing. It's, it's not a physical reality that's on the ground right now. So then it doesn't connect to them. And I think that that comes because of the two steps back that what the Shiva world took uh, because of the whole Zionist project. And that the vast majority of people that were involved in whatever was happening here in Israel were people that were even antagonists to religion in general. And the atmosphere here in general, the public atmosphere, may not have been so conducive to keeping the Torah and mitzvahs. That wasn't the vibe. So maybe that helped reinforce this idea of Eretz Yisrael being some sort of abstract concept. So you, it just it was a reality that didn't exist for them, and so they never connected. You know, Agathas might be nice, but it doesn't connect to reality. Do you do outreach in the American yeshivish community? That's that one of the things you try to do? Or what's, what's the main thing, I guess, you try to do what, on a daily basis? Like, what's, how, what does your day look like? So basically, I write a lot. And a lot of my writing has to do with dispelling misconceptions about life in Eretz Yisrael, especially for the black hat communities. And just, to, again, to make it more realistic in the minds of the people that are still in the U.S. and still abroad. I skipped over something you said before, but I really should go back to it. So you said people have the, or had this notion that the, the state was a little bit antagonistic to religious life. I mean, one could certainly still make that argument, could you not? Clearly, the, the, there are people on the left in Israel who are radically anti-Haredi, and the, I mean, it certainly ha- hasn't disappeared, put it that way. Okay, number one, I'm not sure that in America it's much different. You'll have a lot of people very antagonistic about the Torah world's values. Number two, over here there's a fight, but it's our own fight. This is our country, this is our land, this is where the Jewish nation is supposed to be. So there could be a lot of leftists here that have all sorts of uh, notions about all sorts of things, and we're fighting them. But it's our own fight. We're not fighting somebody else's fight, as would be the case in America. I wonder how you deal with the whole army situation, because I'm, I'm not familiar with all the details, but basically, I mean, they want people to go to the army... If you don't go to the army, you have to be learning. Let's say you're not the biggest learner in the world. You want to work. Well, you can't work now because you didn't go to the army. So you have to pretend to be learning. It's a whole mishmash in Israel now. And if you want to go to the army, the army often is not the most religious environment. I know there's a Nachal Haredi, but I don't think the Nachal Haredi is so huge. So what happens to the many hundreds or even thousands of young men especially if you're from America and you want your kid to be a regular good citizen and he's not the biggest learner, so he's not going to be learning, but he's, again, it's difficult for him to, to work legally. So how do you deal with the situation? What kind of options exist for a young man who does not want to learn until 25, let's say, in Israel? So number one, I'd say like this. It used to be a personal and private problem. In other words, let's say 10 years ago, an individual who would want a more American-style yeshiva education and, and lifestyle might be precluded from doing that because he'd be forced into doing all sorts of things in order to avoid going to the army. That's not suitable for him. 
But now it's not a personal and private thing anymore. Number one, going back to what I said about the general Israeli Haredi society, it's much wider than it used to be. So therefore, you'll have a lot of people that are, will be in the same problem as these Anglos coming in. And basically, it becomes a problem of a huge segment of a society, and not a personal problem. Once that happens, solutions will have to be found on a much higher level. It's not going to be my own personal private fight to see how I'm going to fit in the system. There's going to have to be a system-wide solution for this. And actually, the past couple of months, that's what a lot of the Haredi members of Knesset are busy with. So I guess to give a practical example, I'll say I'm 18 or 19 years old. You know, I'm a good boy, but I don't want to be learning all day long. I want to be a good citizen, get to be a good citizen in Israel. You're supposed to join the army. Are there good, normal, from options for a serious person to, to join the army? Not that I know of today. This may be something that will be worked on, but the Nachal Haredi, from a Haredi point of view, I don't think that it is considered a success. The more hardcore Haredi families, if you'd have someone going there, it's usually going to be somebody that's really on the fringe. It's not mainstream uh-huh. at all. You know, it's interesting. Around five or no, like ten or fifteen years ago now, I interviewed. I forget his name, but he was basically the chief of staff of Netanyahu. So very powerful. And at the time, I asked him about the whole yeshiva army situation, and he used these words to me. He said, "If you do not join the army, we punish you by not letting you work." And I was thinking, like, who are you? Punish? Like, unfortunately, America is changing now also. So maybe an American politician would use the word punish now also. But certainly in the America of old, you know, the government's not your father or mother. They don't punish you. You could say we don't let it. It's illegal. But for someone to use the word punish, it's such a disgusting attitude, I thought. I think attitudes change also as society gets bigger and wider and all sorts of outside influences come in, like Olin. That also has an impact on how things work over here, has an impact on general society. Before the state was created, there were people like Isaac Breuer of Agudas Israel who were dreaming of building a Torah state. Unfortunately, from Jewry didn't really have the numbers 75 years ago to have a profound influence in shaping the new country. Today, though, they do. I believe something like one-third of the Knesset, for example, is observant. And according to Pew Research Center, which is one of the few remaining respected polling centers out there. According to them, fully 51% of Israeli society, this is in 2016, 51% is either Haredi, Dati, or traditional Masorati. Yet, despite these numbers, there's a perception among many that religious Jews in Israel only care about receiving money for their yeshivas, and they care about nothing else. Are you personally, and people you work with, at all focused on the bigger dream of creating a Torah state, which is why, after all, we were taken out of Mitzrayim 3,300 years ago? Or do you just focus on encouraging people to make aliyah and clearing people of their misconceptions they have of the state? It really depends on what context. A lot of us work in both contexts. When we're dealing with helping aliyah, that's what we're dealing with and that's what we're focused on. The idea of a Torah state is more long-term. We definitely have our eyes on that and definitely part of you know, a bigger dream. And I think that uh, the Torah education is where it starts. So on the one hand, you're saying that there's some perception that they only care about receiving money for the yeshivas. But I actually think that the yeshivas and Torah education in general is the basis for a Torah state. When you have well-educated people with a solid Torah education, you know, then you can start speaking to them about this whole idea of Torah is not just 
a private Torah. It's not just a private thing. If you read the Torah from beginning to end, it's actually the blueprint for living on a national level, not just to be focused on the individual. So I guess, again, it's part of a process. We definitely have that in our vision. Right. And even over the years, I mean, let's say, again, I live in Washington Heights, so Rav Breuer, Rav Shachar Rav Hirsch's grandson, was one, the founding rabbi of this community. He personally was not known to be a Zionist, really, but there's an essay of his from 1949, I think, 48 or 49, where he says that perhaps we should be encouraging our younger members to move to Israel and to use their influence to try to make Israel as much of a Torah state as possible. You know, you could argue 100 years ago, maybe we shouldn't have had a project to go back to Israel but once it already exists, certainly, ideally, it should be a Torah state. That's the dream. That's basically the, the Mashiach's dream, really, in a certain way. Definitely. But a lot of it is working slowly but surely to build it up under the radar. Number one, the exponential growth of the Haredi community, Masorati, Dati, like you mentioned before. This 51% is just getting bigger as time goes on. Uh, the, our problem is that the people still holding on to the reins of power and influence are the other 49% together with the Arabs. So that, that's our challenge right now. I think you're better situated than we are here in America. Here we have half the country. There you have more than half the country. But even if you have half the country on your side, the other side, and it's a small portion of the other side, they control the universities, they control the, the media, uh, and, and some other influential organizations or uh, infrastructure. And if you control those, your influence winds up being double, triple, what your numbers should indicate your influence should be. So that's a problem. And the end numbers win, though. It just takes longer, that's all. It's just, unfortunately, so much damage happens before the long run. So someone, I think it was Baruch Marzel, once said, he's not worried about the long run, because he says in the, in the long run, we have children and the, and the left has dogs and cats. So that very well may, tr- may be true. Unfortunately, there's a lot of damage that could be done before the long run. A lot of Jews who could be dead, a lot of things which could be you know, done in rebellion against Hashem. So a lot of damage, both physically and spiritually, unfortunately, could be done. And I think even in the short run, we could probably be fighting a little bit harder. And I think we're sometimes a little bit too passive. That's a question of strategy. That's really a question of strategy. Right. Going back, you said you write a lot. Write a lot for whom and about what? Uh, Number one, just the book that I put out. Basically, it started as interviews that I conducted with people that, that made the move from yeshiva backgrounds. Maybe made them move to Israel, and I'd put them out. I'd interview people. I'd write it up, or they would write it up, and, and I'd edit it. And I'd put it out in all sorts of places, in all sorts of media in, in the U.S., in, in printed media, places that got to the yeshiva audience. And, and eventually, you know, there was enough material to put it together into a book. That's number one. Number two, I put together a, a website that uses the same engine as Wikipedia. It's a community-edited database of uh, all sorts of communities in Eretz Yisrael where people can write. In other words, it's not centralized. People that live in Carmiel, in Rehovot, in all sorts of different places, in Rampe Tremesh, in Ramot Bet, they write about their communities. And again, it's all part of dispelling all these misconceptions. So uh, lifeintheland.com, that's, that's the site. So I'm trying to upgrade that and just have a whole bunch of different resources all covering the same idea of just exposing the reality on the ground over here. Just one or two more things, and this touches on something that I asked before, but a little bit from a different angle. I don't live in Israel, so perhaps I shouldn't be talking, 
But over the years, I've met young yeshivish people who lived in Israel for five or ten years, and then they returned to the United States. And honestly, every time I hear a story like that, I'm a bit shocked because I figure, look, if you're already in Israel, you already could speak Hebrew, you're already used to Israeli culture, why in the world would you move back? Do you think something's wrong with yeshiva education in America if, if these people can return to Chutz Laaretz after spending so many years in Israel? Number one, difficulties could still exist. You know, you might know what it is, but you might not be comfortable in that culture. Another point I'd make is that everywhere there are issues. I'll just quote something from Reb Chaim Zemelinowitz, who actually had a community in Ramat Beit Shemesh that was focused on Olim, or for Olim. And somebody asked him once, what, what are the big issues that congregants come to him with? So he said that the overwhelming majority come with personal, social, work-type issues, nothing to do with being an Oleh, per se. But they're through the prism of being an Oleh. He did say that it annoys him to no end when the Aliyah itself is blamed for problems that these people would obviously, to him, be facing anywhere they lived. So it could be that when you see people that were not successful here, it could be that they wouldn't be successful if they would have moved from uh, New York to Cleveland. It could be that also. There definitely are issues. I'm not trying to you know, underplay the issues. But I think that there's, for every person that you see that was not successful, you know, there's a whole lot more that are successful. And I actually, you know, sometimes our perception is not based on real numbers. So one of the guys that was working with me, he actually spoke to an accountant that had the numbers. He had the files of a whole bunch of people. He said, tell me, how many of your clients, an American accountant that works in Israel, how many of your clients end up moving back? So he said it was a really small percent. It was uh, maybe 4 or 5%. So that means the overwhelming majority, 95%, are people that are living here. I don't want to put you on the spot, but off the top of your head, I just want to go back to an earlier issue. Which poskim say that living in Israel actually is a mitzvah? So I'll just quote you from my, my book. I have, as an epilogue, Rabzev Left wrote an essay about 30 years ago. It was used as the introduction to a book called To Dwell in the Palace. And this introduction of his actually... Rav Gifter went through the entire introduction and he gave his endorsement on the book, but specifically on the introduction. He said he, he went through the his Talmud of Zevlef's essay and he found it worthy. So this has his askama. And so in this piece by Revlef, I'll just read you exactly what he says about that. And there are some who maintain that the mitzvah is not binding at all today. This was the opinion of the late Samar Rebbe Zetzal and some others. Even if we ascribe great weight to this minority opinion, however, we must ask ourselves how we conduct ourselves regarding other mitzvahs that are binding only according to some opinions. Do we not go to great lengths to be yotzeh all the shitos? In the case of Yishev Eretz Yisrael, the preponderance of opinion in favor of the binding nature of the commandment includes the Peschei Truva, the Avnei Nezer, the Chafetz Chaim, the Ger Rebbe, the Chazanish, no, three dots. The purpose of this article is not to enter into halachic debate, nor to be so presumptuous as to rush in where giants have trodden before me. Yes, there are liable halachic opinions which would mitigate the obligatory nature of usual rights in our times. But the list of opinions in support of the imperative of fulfilling this mitzvah today, only fractionally mentioned in the above paragraph, is a formidable one. That's from Rabzlef's essay. I've heard, and in your book also mentions, 
that if you really want, there are some people who want to move to Eretz Israel and they want to become complete Israelis. There are other people who really want as little change as possible. And I've heard, I've th- I read in your book, that there are communities in Israel where you can move today from America and you, you wouldn't even be able to tell much of a difference. You'll hear English on the street, you'll hear English in the store, you'll go to shul, everyone's speaking English, your rabbi's speaking English, so that you can feel super duper comfortable, at least initially. How many of these communities are there? And just could you, could you just name a few of them, actually, so people should know about them? So I think that it exists uh, primarily in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Ramat Beit Shemesh is a huge place, and within Ramat Beit Shemesh you will have several communities like that. We didn't really mention, but you are involved in trying to get people to move all sorts of places in Israel, because outside, you know, if you want to move to the center, you, Yushalayim, you're talking about very expensive homes. If you move in a little bit further north, a little bit further south, it could be much more affordable. Are there communities there where Americans would feel super comfortable, or there it's a little more complicated? It's more suitable for those that are willing to integrate, at least to some degree. Uh, there is now an attempt, in a full other session attempt, to make something that's much more comfortable for Americans, though they are concentrated on integrating as well. They're not trying to make a, a place where you can just do or cut and paste. Uh, cut and paste, that's something I think primarily Ramapi Chemish. There are places like Rehovot has a Kihila that's primarily American, but they are connected to the outside community. I mean, to work, you, I don't think you can find work within that framework and not have to integrate at all. But just from a community point of view, so you can be very comfortable having like your American Rav, your American Shul, your American Shirim in English, and, and that kind of thing. Look, I think everyone wants to integrate eventually, but or at least you want your kids to integrate, but I guess at least in the beginning, you can make the transition a little bit easier if you're not just like thrown in the deep end of the pool. So there's some places where people can do it together. So it makes it a bit easier. That's actually what they did in Afula. A whole bunch of families came together, and this way they're going through it together. So the growing pains get divided between everybody together. Right, right. Okay, if a listener of this podcast is interested in exploring Aliyah or knowing more about what you do, where would you advise he go? To that website you mentioned before, somewhere else? You can start for just getting a little feel, lifeintheland.com. That's one. Another resource could be, I have a website called aviradeeretzyisrael.org. Now I spell Yisrael with an O, aviradeeretzyisrael.org. Both Avira Deeretz Yisrael and Life in the Land more focused on the yeshiva community. And I have to give a shout out here to my friend Alicia Brook, who's also involved with Kedusha Sien, with what I'm doing. And for the past couple of months, has been working in Nefesh Benefesh in a subdivision that is focused on helping people from yeshiva backgrounds. It's just having one of us that works in Nefesh Benefesh. I mean, everybody knows Nefesh Benefesh. But the Chirsh here is that it always was thought of for the yeshiva world as just to deal with the bureaucratic issues. But as far as community is concerned, people really wouldn't turn to them because I think the perception was that more modern Orthodox-oriented or Datilumi, and the yeshiva world didn't really feel that there's somebody they can connect with there, you know, on their level, that understands them, comes from their background. So that basically now we have that. Nefesh Benefesh now has, I think, even more than one. He's one, but they actually hired another one now also. Somebody that comes from within the yeshiva community that can explain things in Israel in their terms. So someone's they're interested, they should call Nefesh Benefesh and say, I would like to speak to Alicia Brook. 
they don't have to. They can just tell them they're from yeshiva background and ask who they could be directed to that would understand things in their terms. And now there are people on staff that actually speak the language. Right, right. Which is very smart. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Hatzlacha and all your work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hope to see you all over here soon. Amen. All right, that does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.